130. Page 624. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Thanks, Paul. Bonjour, everyone. It's about the extent of my French skills. Probably wouldn't be much good in the DRC. Let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us from your word. Amen. Please do have a copy of uh, uh, Psalm 130 open in front of you. There should be a Bible in the pew, and uh, it would be great if you could turn that up. Um, what takes 119 and a half seconds? Anyone know? No one knew in the first service. Good things come to those who wait. Pint of Guinness, yes, is 119 and a half seconds, apparently, according to Guinness. It's annoying, isn't it? 119 and a half seconds, having to wait. It is pretty frustrating. I used to be a barman, and I can tell you there's nothing more annoying than somebody putting in a huge order of drinks, and then the last drink is a pint of Guinness. I think you could have told me at the beginning, and we could have had it settling whilst I poured all the others, and now we've got to wait 119 and a half seconds. We don't like waiting for anything. It's frustrating. It's annoying. We uh, have all sorts of gizmos and gadgets in the 21st century that allow us not to have to wait and waste our time doing so. Uh, 21st century is not, waiting is not a 21st century pastime. Uh, we don't like waiting for anything. We don't like waiting for responses from people. We don't like waiting for emails. When we email someone, we want them to get back to us quickly, don't we? We've got on our iPhones now, it tells us when the other person has seen our message. We know when they've seen it. So if they've seen it and they don't respond to us, we're sitting there thinking, can't they see that I've seen that they've seen? Why don't they get back to me? We hate waiting for the adverts on the television. We don't have to because it's the 21st century, so we can just fast forward, can't we, with Sky Plus. Times 8, times 16, if we're really good, and we become an absolute pro at starting it again at exactly the right moment so we don't have to wait for any adverts. If you're really good, you get up into the heady heights of times 32. <laughs> Woe betide you if you overshoot <laughs> and have to go back and cause everybody to wait. We're so impatient. We don't like waiting even for our tea to brew. So we mash the tea bag around in the mug. <laughs> brew faster! 
There's even apparently such a thing today as instant coffee. That's a joke. I know what instant coffee is. Coffee snobbery is definitely a 21st century pastime. You ever had that awkward thing when you're at someone's house and they offer you a cup of coffee and you're sitting there thinking, um, you're trying to work out what sort of coffee you're being offered. <clears throat> I know you all do it. We hate waiting for things. It's an inconvenience. Uh, we hate waiting for silly little things like that, but we hate waiting for serious things as well. We get frustrated. Frustration is the opposite of waiting patiently. And we get frustrated about all sorts of serious things, frustrated with our singleness. We hate waiting uh, to enjoy and experience some of the, the privileges of being married. We want them now. We don't want to have to wait. Perhaps we're frustrated with our job situation, frustrated by lack of fulfillment, frustrated that our peers, our contemporaries are being promoted quicker and further and higher than we have been. And it's natural to be frustrated sometimes, frustrated by all these things, because actually they're not right. Some things just aren't right, and we get frustrated with having to wait for that situation to be resolved, and we find ourselves getting down. Maybe your situation isn't right. Maybe all isn't as it should be, and you're frustrated waiting. Perhaps you're out of work, or perhaps you're in work, but you're stuck in a job that you hate and you wish you were out of. Maybe you're dealing with bereavement or illness or depression or relationship breakdown. Perhaps you're stuck in a, a pattern of a cycle of sin ongoing that you're finding it impossible to break out of. Perhaps you feel far from God. And you find yourself in the position of the writer of this psalm. Please turn with me to verse 1 of Psalm 130. And he says, verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Out of the depths I cry to you, he says. Out of the depths, he's in the depths of despair. The slough of despond. He's saying, hear my voice. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy, he says. I presume that's because he feels like God isn't listening to him. That God isn't hearing, hearing his voice. That he isn't attentive to his cry. I wonder whether you ever feel like that. That God isn't listening to you as you're frustrated, waiting. God is on mute. This guy's reached rock bottom. I used to work in a garden center, in a, in, a, in a warehouse that distributed stuff to garden centers. And one of the garden centers we distributed stuff to was called Rock Bottom Garden Center. I always used to wonder how they answered their phone. Hello, you've reached rock bottom. <laughs> Thank you very much. But this guy's reached rock bottom. He's really there. He's in the depths. He's crying out to God. Isn't it extraordinary that the scriptures are real? That they don't pretend that everything is okay all the time. Actually, they don't sort of seem to give the impression that everybody is living in some blissful cocoon of rainbows and bliss and nothing ever goes wrong. Now, actually, this guy's crying out from the depths. Here we've got somebody who actually made a contribution to the Bible, who's written part of the Bible, who's in the depths. Imagine you've got the big call-up from the editors of the Bible, and they said, we're just doing the Psalms, and we wondered if you could put a little piece together. I mean, what would you put in there? You probably would put something, you wouldn't put something about being in the depths, would you? Surely only people who are never in the depths are allowed to contribute to the actual Bible. But here it is. Apparently not. 
crying out from the depths. And crying out isn't something you often do, is it? Crying out. Crying out to God, crying out to anyone. Not British. If this was a British psalm, it would be, out of the depths I maintained a stiff upper lip and summoned up the resolve to crack on unfazed without showing any sign of vulnerability. That would be what we would do. But no, this psalmist is crying out, crying out from the depths. We don't know whether David wrote this psalm. It doesn't say he wrote a lot of psalms, but it doesn't say whether he wrote this one or not. But David was no stranger to crying out to God from the depths. There's a few psalms, just a few pages further on, Psalms 141, 2, and 3, all start the same way that with David crying out to God from the depths, crying out for mercy, crying out, hear my voice, God. And we think, God, uh, David, that great hero of the Old Testament, the king of Israel, the one chosen by God, the man after God's own heart, it says, the one who slayed Goliath, the one who owns the copyright to the six-point star, he was crying out to God from the depths. And there's a bit on Psalm 142, after, just before verse 1, where it says, a psalm of David, and it says, when he was in the cave. And there was a bit when King David, before he was king, actually lived in a cave. Can you imagine? In the desert, fearing for his life with a few friends. And he was in there, crying out to God. He was in the depths. And I wonder what you would think if you were him. I mean, he'd had promises made to him, extraordinary promises, which didn't seem to be coming true. The prophet Samuel, if you know the story, had turned up to his house when he was a teenager and singled him out and in front of all of his family, chosen him and said, I've got a message from God. You're going to be king one day. And he'd whipped out the extra virgin olive oil and anointed him and said, God has chosen you to be king. I mean, never met this guy before. Can you imagine if that was today? You'd probably think he'd escaped from somewhere. But David was anointed by God and told, you're going to be king. And then now, I mean, it's not exactly coming true for him, is it? He's in the cave, fearing for his life. There's already a king, and he doesn't seem to be King Saul. Very, you know, he seems perfectly happy being king. Was that true? Was what Samuel said true? Do you think whether he ever just questioned, maybe perhaps he got it wrong? Those promises which were made to him. And Samuel was dead by that point as well. I mean, can you imagine if you were David there, crying out to God from the depths? That's where he was. And this psalmist is crying out to God from the depths. All was not as it should be. And what happens? He cries out to God. And in verse 3 and 4, he was reminded, when he cried out to God, he was reminded and he reminded himself of God's faithful forgiveness. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you're to be feared. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? That is extraordinary. When God forgives, it is full and final forgiveness. He doesn't even keep a record. Can you imagine that? God doesn't even keep a record of forgiven sins. Somebody said to me the other day that God doesn't just forgive and forget. He forgives and then he deliberately chooses not to remember anymore. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. An incalculable distance. Isaiah says that God has put all of his sins behind his back. An amazing picture. 
God's just taken his sins. I'll have those. Put them behind my back. Gone. It doesn't even keep a record of sins. Do you believe that? I mean, try to get your head around the fact that when we have done something wrong and we have cried out to God for forgiveness, he forgives, he forgives us and then he doesn't even keep a record anymore of what we've done wrong. I find that absolutely extraordinary. The vilest offender that truly believes, as the hymn goes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives, like the thief on the cross, in that instant was forgiven and all of his sins were remembered no more. That was the shocking thing about Jesus. It wasn't so much his teaching or his miracles that got him into trouble, but the fact that he claimed to forgive sins that really offended. He was a forgiving Jesus. You remember when the man got lowered down through the roof, the paralyzed man, all of, all of his friends brought him to see Jesus on his mat and they couldn't get him into the house because it was so full. So the obvious thing, rather than going in through the front door, was to come down, do a little bit of DIY and dismantle the roof and they lowered him down. And Jesus, I mean the expectation, can you imagine... He didn't heal him. The first thing he said to him was, son, your sins are forgiven. And that caused real offense. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus' ministry was one of forgiveness. Well, I wonder whether you feel like we made a little bit of a strange jump. It's not an obvious connection between the first half of this psalm and the the bit we've just been talking about we were talking about being in the depths and crying out to God and then now we're talking about forgiveness how did we get from one to the other and uh, I wonder whether the paralyzed man thought the same thing bit of a strange jump I've come to you with I'm in the depths I've got a problem here and Jesus is talking about forgiveness how are those two things connected well why is the psalmist in the depths verse 2 tells us let's have a look O Lord, hear my voice, he says. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. My cry for mercy. He's crying out for mercy. And so perhaps the reason that he's in the depths is his own sinfulness. He's actually got himself into the depths. And this might not be a little, uh, this might be uncomfortable to hear for some of us, but actually. The scripture says that being in the depths is always the result of sin. This guy's crying out for mercy, and sin leads to being in the depths. Maybe it's our own sin, maybe it's somebody else's sin, maybe it's directly, maybe it's indirectly, but whatever the case, sin leads to being in the depths. You know who quoted this psalm? Almost word for word in the Old Testament was Jonah. When he cries out to God, he said, Jonah chapter 2, I cry out to you, O Lord, from the depths. Hear my cry for mercy, O Lord, hear my voice. When Jonah was in the depths of the belly of the fish, in the depths of the ocean. Why was he there? Because of his own sin, his unbelief, his rebellion, his disobedience. Run away from God. Because being in the depths is always the result of sin. Now I know... Immediately we're thinking, hang on a minute, surely not all awful situations are the result of sin. And please don't misunderstand me. The scripture makes it clear that being in the depths is the result of sinfulness, even things which don't appear to be connected indirectly. Um, the scripture says that even creation, because of sin, the sinfulness of humanity, uh, is subject to frustration and waiting for liberation from bondage to decay. Now, I'm not saying that if we're in um, 
some, in some sort of problem which is not obviously linked to sin. It's easy to see that link when it's, for example, I have um, perhaps wasted all of my money sinfully and now I'm in the depths because of that. Well, it's easy to see that I've put myself there. But sometimes it's impossible uh, and offensive to make that connection. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if we're perhaps in the depths of depression, that we need forgiveness in order to be released from it. But the point of, of this psalm and the point of the scriptures is that that depression was never part of God's good creation. That all problems, all pains, all sicknesses, everything which is not good and pure and perfect and lovely is not a, a part of God's design and is there because of the sinfulness of humanity. 200 mile an hour typhoons were not there before humanity's sinfulness. They are indirectly linked and the, the Bible calls that the effect of the fall. Which is why this is good news that God's forgiveness is the answer to whatever depths we're in. We need forgiveness. It might look like a weird jump, and it looked like a weird jump to the paralyzed man, but it's not. Forgiveness is always the answer to being in the depths. The psalmist here was in the depths, and he needed forgiveness. When I'm in the depths, I need forgiveness. The creation is in the depths, and creation needs not forgiveness, but redemption, which is also in this psalm. Verse 7 Put your hope in the Lord, with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. And redemption and forgiveness, here go hand in hand, they're intertwined. Verse 8 says that he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. He doesn't say forgive, I mean, he uses the word synonymously uh, with forgiveness. He will redeem Israel from their sins. And so the truth of this psalm is that God is a God who longs to forgive all of our personal sinfulness and put all of our personal problems right, but he also longs to redeem the whole of creation and solve all of the big problems which don't appear to be connected to our sinfulness. He will do that because he's a forgiving God. With God there is full forgiveness. He doesn't keep a record of sins. And he's going to forgive. He's going to redeem. He's going to lift us up out of the depths. Unfailing love. Full redemption, this psalm says. But the question is when? When will he do that? Because at the moment it looks like there's a lot of people in the depths and not a whole lot of redemption very often that we can see. And we're back where we started with verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchman waits for the morning. He repeats himself. And he says the word wait five times in two verses. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. This psalmist, whilst he was waiting for the redemption, whilst he was waiting for the fullness of forgiveness, waited on the Lord. And we're to wait on the Lord. We're to wait for him. Waiting for the Lord is a scriptural principle. We don't like it necessarily. We don't like waiting for our tea to brew. We don't like waiting for the Lord. But that's what we're called to do here. There's, uh, it's very difficult. There's even a whole theology that is built up around saying that we don't have to wait. Actually, God doesn't want us to wait. He wants us to give everything, give everything to us now. And sometimes we can, we can feel that. Your best life now is the title of a best-selling book by a popular American pastor that says that God is going to sort out all of our problems now. And I'm sure he is enjoying 
quite a good life, judging by all the royalties that he must have made from selling that book. But it's not what the Bible is teaching us to do here. This word is that we're to wait. We're to wait on the Lord. David waited. He waited in that cave, fearing for his life. Think of Joseph. 13 years in prison for something he didn't do. And what a whole lot of different things the Lord had to teach him through that process of having to wait for the promises of the Lord to be fulfilled. Waiting for the Lord. We need patience, which doesn't come naturally. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says. One of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Something which will grow supernaturally in the life of the believer as we wait on him. We must wait for the fruition of his promises. Why don't we just give up? Because it's tempting to, isn't it? What's our grounds for waiting? And people do give up, waiting for the goodness of the Lord to come through. When I was a kid, um, our school bus used to get into our village at 20 past eight, and there was a rule that if the bus was half an hour late, we could all go home and have a day off school. I don't know whether that was a real rule or whether somebody just made it up, but we definitely believed it. And whenever the bus looked like it was getting to be a little bit late, we thought, oh, it's 15 minutes late, 20 minutes late. Is it going to get to the magic half hour? At which point we can just give up and go home. And it never did. The wretched thing would always turn up with about 30 seconds to spare, just when it looked like we were about to get the day off school. Except for once. And the minute that it became half an hour late, we shot off down the road. And the police were there. I don't know. To this day, I don't understand extraordinary bad luck that in the middle of nowhere, first thing in the morning, the police were waiting for us. But I can't remember how that story finished. But the point is... The point is that we didn't want to wait. For us, it wasn't worth waiting for. We wanted to give up. Why shouldn't we give up? And the truth is that we only put our hope in and we only wait for things that we think are worth waiting for. Think of all those chumps who queue up outside the iPhone shop waiting for the new iPhone to come out overnight, camping there in their sleeping bags. They're waiting for whatever it is, the new iPad. They think it's worth waiting for. They put their hope in whatever Apple has got to deliver to them. But what are we waiting for? What are we putting our hope in? And this psalm in verse 5 tells us what we're to put our hope in. I wait for the Lord, it says, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. We put our hope in his word. His word is worth putting our hope in. David put his hope in his word. David had had a specific promise from the Lord and he clung to it. He put his hope in it and he waited. Joseph was the same. This psalmist, that's what he did and that's what we're to do. We're to put our hope in God's word because of the phenomenal, extraordinary promises which God has made to us in the scriptures. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. That's what we sing. And he's made the most incredible promises to us that we must cling to. What extraordinary promises there are. Some things he promises, well, some things he gives us now out of his generosity as a foretaste. Sometimes he lifts us up out of the depths. Sometimes we experience the fullness of his redemption, the fullness of his forgiveness now, which is extraordinary. But there are some things which we must wait for the fulfillment of eternity and wait for the Lord 
for him to come through. So wherever you are, wherever you're crying out from, whatever depths you're in, there are precious promises to you and to me in his word of of forgiveness, of redemption, of joy, of peace, of happiness, of healing, of his presence with us. Do you cherish them? Do you treasure them? Do you meditate on them? Do you memorize them? Do you highlight them? Do you know where they are? If you don't, then it's worth looking some up. Come and speak to the vicar. He'll tell us where they all are. Whatever problem we've got, whatever trial we're facing, whatever depths we're in, the Lord has promised good to us. And we must wait. Wait more than the watchman wait for the morning. More than the person waits for the new iPhone. Put our hope in the Lord. And um, I'm just going to finish by reading this. The most extraordinary of all promises, I think. Something which we can all put our hope in. Something which we can all wait for. It comes right at the end of the scriptures. In the book of Revelation. And it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Sign me up for that. That is extraordinary. An extraordinary promise which we can wait for. And the most amazing promise is right at the end of the Bible, the last promise to be made in the scriptures. I am coming soon. Jesus is coming and we're to wait for him. We're to hold fast to the promises of his word. I will wait for the, for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, we cry out to you from the depths. There are so many problems that we face, so many pains that we experience, so many frustrations which cause us to cry out. But we're reminded, Lord, that you are a God of forgiveness, a God of redemption, a God who longs to bring full, perfect forgiveness. And we thank you so much. Uh, for the promise of that word, and we pray that you would help us to wait. Help us to wait for you. Help us to wait for the fullness of your redemption. We pray that you would grant us the, uh, the supernatural fruit of the spirit of patience. And we pray that you would help us to put our hope in your word. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together.